At Drummond Golf, we understand your passion. Nice roll. And that's because every Drummond Golf store is owned and run by a local who loves the game as much as you do. Yeah, it's come off the face really well. Someone who knows where you play and what you need. Oh, yeah. Looking good. With Australia's biggest range and expert knowledge. Great. Now let's try that putter with this grip. So if you want to improve your game, see a local expert at Drummond Golf. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing search for the answer to that eternal question, what is The Thing About Golf? My name's Rod Murray, and normally at this time, I'd be joined by my colleague John Huggan to introduce an episode that he has recorded. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, I haven't been able to catch up with Huggy, so I'm flying solo for this introduction. On the upside, that means it'll be shorter to listen to and get you more quickly to what is a fascinating chat with Sky Sports commentator Ewan Murray, unquestionably one of the most familiar voices in the game. Like so many of his TV commentary brethren, we often forget Murray was a player long before he stepped into the booth. But that background is very much at the forefront of this chat with Huggy, which we'll get to now. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. Uh, welcome to the latest uh, thing about golf podcast. Um, my latest guest is uh, sitting opposite me here and we'll have one of the most familiar voices, I think, to anybody who's certainly watched golf on Sky Sports over the years. You uh, and Murray, uh, what was the thing about golf for you? I think the joy of playing a, a sport that had everything right about it. I think it's a sport you can play from a young kid, starting about six, seven years of age, and God willing, you're healthy enough. You can play up until your 80s, and, and the social side of it as well. I mean, there's so many great things about the game of golf, but, but that for me is is what golf's all about, is being with people, the people you want to be with, the fun you have, uh, the good times, uh, the many bad times you have in, in golf. Yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But you were born into golf, literally almost, weren't you? I mean, your dad was a, you know, a very, you know, certainly in the Edinburgh, you're a very famous teaching pro. Yeah, my father was born in Arbroath, uh, just north of St Andrews. And he met my mother at Glen Eagles, where he was the assistant pro. And my mother worked in the hotel. Right. She was from the Outer Hebrides. And uh, they moved to Edinburgh and he was there for 35 years. Uh, taught a lot of good players, a lot of good amateurs yeah. in Scotland. And a well-respected club professional. But, but life was tough. You know, club professional didn't make an awful lot of money in no. these days. Uh, he were, I wouldn't say on the bread line, but he didn't have much extra after it. Yeah, yeah. So... What was your introduction to it then? I mean, did he did he teach you? I mean, it's always difficult, the father-son dynamic. I mean, how did that figure out with you? Yes, I, I started playing when I was about five. Yeah. And my father was my only teacher until he passed away in 1985. Uh, no one else. Mm-hmm. Uh, his word was gospel. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it was often the way in these days. Yeah. Um, fairly strict upbringing. Wonderful childhood. Because if I wasn't at school or playing football, I, I was on the golf course. Right. And, and, of course, I was safe there. Yeah. And I was there all the daylight hours. Yeah. yeah, they never had to worry about where you were, obviously. No, and when he locked up at night and I wasn't back, he, he would walk out with my mother right. and say, look, it's time you were going home. Right. 
in the summer evenings it was late until 10.30 right yeah so you were at the golf course from 8 in the morning until 10.30 yeah and you were a bit of a prodigy for want of a better word as a boy golfer I mean when did it become clear that the, there was some talent there I played in my first tournament when I was 10 uh, at a place called Rathow Park in Edinburgh and Bernard Gallagher won it Oh, it was yeah. the Redmond Trophy. I hope you were second. Bernard was 16. Uh, I had two 92s of <laughs> 24 handicap yeah. at 10, and that was my first prize. I, I got a £2 voucher, which was enough to buy a lot of golf balls in these yeah, days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're, well, obviously, obviously, you progressed quite quickly because, I mean, you were winning national championships by the time you were 15. I mean, Fifteen, I got beaten in the final of the British boys at Hillside. Yeah. Have you forgiven Ian Gradwell yet? I got beat from Ian Gradwell. I was yeah. one up and two to go yeah. in, in the 36-0 final. But I was four foot ten. Right. I was really quite small yeah. as a, a, a kid. And I hit three woods to the 17th, the par five. Yeah. I hit two drivers at the last and didn't reach the par four. <laughs> and Ian finished with two fours. Right. He held a big bit at 17, and, and he was on in two at the last. So that was the first time I'd ever been out of Scotland. Yeah. Right. yeah. But, I mean, well, how good were you at that stage? You're, you're being very modest here, Jude, because, I mean, your your record as a boy golfer, I mean, I, wa- I wasn't going to bring up the fact that you were, but I will, the, the first player ever to win the Scottish boys match play and stroke play at the same time. I wouldn't bring up who was the second player to do that, but you, yeah. you know, you, well, you take it from there. Well, one of the chosen few, John. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> uh, the following April, uh, I won the Scottish Boys. I was 29 under par in April uh, on North Berwick, which is quite good. That's impressive. I was beginning to have pattern problems at that time. And even then? I remember the day it happened. I was 15, and it happened at a place called Long Nidry. Right. And I had two shots on the first green fairly close, and I thought, well, knock this in, get off to a birdie start. And something happened. There was a, mis- a mishap between the brain and the hands. And I went through a very difficult two months. I didn't want to play golf. Right. Because I couldn't get the ball in the hole from a foot. Right. And somehow I got over that. And, and when I won the Scottish boys at North Berwick, I was using a, a putting style that was derived by Paul Trevelyan. Yes. Where the right hand yeah. was nearly on the pattern. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, the left hand was at the top of the shaft. Yeah. And I looked like a giraffe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was okay from 10 feet and longer. Yeah. But the closer I got, and I, I mean close, I mean nine inches, it became quite difficult. Yeah. And to give you an instance, when the, the, the stroke play was at Lanark, lovely course, lovely moorland course, mm. And I was five in front playing the last hole, which was a par three. And I had it to about five feet. So I've got a putt to win by five or six. Mm-hmm. And I three-putted it. No pressure. Yeah. And that, that was a bit of a problem. Then, then I went to America to play in the World Junior. Yeah, in San at, Diego. Yeah. At the higher, yeah. yeah. And I had the same problem there. And, and yet managed to win... Well, you won the overseas part of that, didn't you? The overseas part. It was yeah. called the International Trophy or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think Craig Stadler won the right. the main one. Right. And then I played in my last um, amateur event at Carnoustie, which was the Crosnace Tassie. Right. 
and I, I was like the guy that shot Bambi's mum because I beat David Gregg. Oh, and and David Gregg was Mr. Carnoustie. No mean feat at that time, yeah. Yeah, he was a wonderful girlfriend, and more than that, he was a wonderful person yeah, as well. He beat Faldo famously in the home internationals. Yeah, playing for Scotland. Yeah. Well, to beat him was a a big thing, and and to win at Carnoustie, where near where my father was brought up, mm-hmm. was was quite important. But as I say, we didn't have much money in these days, and I couldn't see myself winning these things again. And I thought maybe this is the time to turn professional. Mm-hmm. And my father was dead against it. Really? And he was right. Because I was small, uh, not very strong, didn't hit the ball a long way. Had an amazing short game. Yes. Chipping in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bunker playing. Yeah. But then I still had the putting problem. Uh, and that was always in the back of my mind. And the first show I hit as a professional was at Prestwick. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was windy, it was yeah. November. Yeah. It was in a winter league or something match. And I had a, a two iron, and Frank Rennie's shop shielded the wind. Yes. <laughs> but as it sailed past the edge of the shop in the clubhouse, it dived off to the right, over the wall, into a coal truck, bound for Newcastle. And I thought, welcome the, to the professional the world. The longest two iron ever hit. <laughs> Maybe this isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm interested in the in the putting part of it, though. I mean, was it a physical thing, a mental thing? I mean, it, how how does it, it play out? It's something, John. I'm very ashamed of that. That you won. Well, you're hardly unique. I mean, there's been plenty of examples of that. I mean, well, Langer was the same. Um, I played with Langer in the Dutch Open, and the first nine holes he hit eight greens in par and one in under par, and he was out in 44, and he took a divot out the ninth green from about four feet. Really. So I knew how he was feeling. Yeah. I wasn't that bad, but... And he was in tears. And I, I remember coming in and speaking to Chuck McVicker and saying, I've just played with one of the, the best players I've seen, but we're never going to hear of him mm. because he can't get the putter back. Yeah. And, of course, the rest, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, an amazing career. But he obviously had the mental strength to get over that. And I'm quite ashamed and embarrassed that... I didn't find a way. Well, you say that, but you, you coped for it for a while. I mean, I was looking up your record, and you know, you, you must be the only man who's ever won the Zambian Open, the Nigerian Open, and the Northern Open. I would imagine that's fairly unique. But, well, the, so, but you, 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 and you were, you know, you played in opens, and you, you know, finished a lot of top tens in tournaments and things. I mean, you were, you, you found a way to make it work to an extent, surely. Um, I met Orville Moody. Uh, who won the US Open in 69. Yeah. And Orville had a putter up the inside of his left arm. Yeah, yeah. And I was having a bit of trouble, and I was playing with him and Tommy Bolt. I mean, two great players. Yeah. Bolt was the US Open champion 58, and he was 62 years of age then, but still a very good player. Yeah. And Orville said, look, I'm going home, I've got a few of these. Take this putter, work with it, and and it'll help you. It, it won't make you yeah. Ben Crenshaw or nothing no. like that, but, no. it, but it'll help you. So I got that putter in 78, but 77 I won the Northern Open, and it was the same story as the Scottish boys' stroke play. I was, I was five in front coming up the last, mm-hmm. Royal Dornach, I mean, yeah. what a place to win. Yeah. And I hit two drivers that were made by my boss then, right. Harry Busson. Right. 
at Wilton Heath. Oh, wonderful clubs. Yeah, yeah they were fantastic. And I hit it to about four and a half, five feet. So I've got a putt to win by. Same story. Yeah. Six inches short, five inches wide to the right. Not even a stroke. Right. And that week I had James Braid's putter that Harry had taken out of the glass case in the clubhouse wow. and said, look, whatever you do, don't Don't lose. break it, yeah. And I don't, <laughs> yes, that was another thing. I was a bit of a hothead as yeah, well. Yeah. And I had this blade putter that, that Braid had won all the various things with Open Championships a lot. But I, I just shuffled it forward and, and yet I had five, six putts yeah, to win. Yeah. So what did that feel like then? Can you remember? Well, Ronnie Shade had stayed up because I didn't have a car then. He'd stayed up, he'd finished earlier and he was going to drive me home. Now, it should have been a joyous evening mm-hmm. driving home in his Datsun 280ZX. Right. Because you've won a tournament, you've won it at Dorna, you've won it well. A thousand pounds I had in my pocket, which was enough to put a deposit on a flat in London. Yeah. <laughs> and, Not anymore. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't. Because of the way, the manner in which I finished it off, if I'd missed the putt and it had lipped out, yeah, it, you know, absolutely fine. Yeah. But it was such a feeble effort. And like golfers, you remember the bad things. Yeah. You never remember the good things you did. And obviously, over four rounds, there was some good things. Obviously, in you must have done a lot of good, yeah, exactly. I and mean, it was sleet. Because uh, it was played in, in April, uh, and it, it was sleet in the morning, and I shot 69, which was the best by six. Yeah. And I had this handsome lead to yeah. take in. So all the good things that happened, I sort of ignored them, and I, I centred on the, the putt at the last. Yeah. Um, but the following year, I got the one up the arm, and that, I wouldn't say I was tremendous, but, but I could find a way of of getting the ball in the hole. Yeah. Still wasn't pretty. Yeah. So so how do you look back on that then? I mean, your your pro your playing career as a pro, do you feel frustrated, underachieved, you know? What? Definitely underachieved. Yeah. Uh, when I look at some of the scores that I shot as 15 and 16-year-old, playing with the old equipment on, on good golf courses. Mm-hmm. I mean, La Jolla was a, a tough course as well. The north and south there yeah. was tough. And I looked at the scores and I thought, well, you must have done something right. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't just be hopeless. Yeah. And and shoot sixty five and six and and whatever. But yeah, un- underachieved. Uh, I did win in Sierra Leone and Gambia as well, but which was almost sand courses. Right. But ball striking was obviously very important because yeah. there was no preferred lights. I mean, you mm-hmm. you played from where it was. Nigeria was also almost a sand course in, in Ikoi. Uh, Zambia was a big one now because that was a really good golf course uh, and a long golf course at that time, long and tight. And I had 67 greens out of the 72 and won that by three. It's a credit to your dad's teaching, if nothing else. Yeah, he obviously got very frustrated with me because he couldn't understand why you've got this problem from, yeah. from 12 inches. Yeah. I mean, you go down and see a grandmother and the putton green at North Berwick or the Himalayas at St Andrews yeah. and she'll go up to a two foot and just tap yeah. it in and yeah. it was me yeah. winning international events putting together good scores but couldn't guarantee I could get in the ball the ball in the hole from 
yeah. from 12 inches. Yeah. Yeah. Was it was it the kind of case where I've heard some people talk about this, where they, they miss one and it's almost a relief and they're almost fine after that? Or did it get worse for you? Oh, no. It wasn't that easy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'll just miss one and I'll be fine. Yeah, no. Um, I finished third in the in the Tournament Players Championship in 79 and, and I finished third in the Bob Hope, both in the same course at Moor Park, which had really fast greens. Mm-hmm. And I was better yeah. on fast greens. I was better when I didn't have to hit it. Right. And uh, my big, when money-wise, came in Nigeria. Uh, and I took the money list of a safari tour, got me into the Open, mm-hmm. which was a big thing, because yeah. I'd lost five playoffs in pre-qualifying. Really? I found pre-qualifying so stressful mm-hmm. because I desperately wanted to play in the Open. Yeah. And my first opener, I was 18 uh, at, at Troon, uh, which I played the four rounds there, uh, the one Weisskopf one. But the money in uh, Nigeria made life a lot easier for me. Uh, I could then buy a third house, right. and I, I'd made money on the others. Right. So I had a bit of security. Yeah. But I, I got divorced. I'd, I'd only been married a year to a lovely girl who, who lives in New Zealand now. She was a pro golfer. Yeah, I remember. Stephanie yeah. Jolly. Yeah. She, she was a really lovely girl. It just was never going to work out. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. But we needed to part. Yeah. And then my father died. All at the same time. Yeah. And I kind of... A bit of me died with him. Because mm. I always felt he was... He was someone to lean on. Yeah. And, and, you, and you were kind of doing it for him a little bit, were you? Did you, did you Definitely like in happened? Nigeria, because yeah. they gave him three weeks to live. Mm. Uh, and he lasted about 15 months. But he was he was four stone at the end of that. Cancer, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty much all over. Yeah. But he didn't want to go. And he was as sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. And I used to fly up every Tuesday from London to Edinburgh and spend Tuesday with him. And then fly back and then go to the tournament the next day and it all got a little bit stressful and, yeah. and sad because I'd spent so much time with my parents yeah. and I was one of these lucky guys that, that had two loving parents and um, and that stands you in good stead later on in your life mm-hmm. you don't think that then but, yeah. but you know now yeah. so part of me went with, with him and, and then it became a, a real struggle I was uh, playing in company golf days Thankfully, Tommy Horton and Brian Barnes, uh, Malcolm Gregson. British Caledonian thing. Yeah, I was part of their, yeah. their team. They had a team of 12. Jack Newton was, was one of them right, as well. There you go. Did you um, learn a few things from Jack, did you? I did. I, I'm not sure all of them <laughs> sort of stood me in great stead throughout. <laughs> but he was a wonderful yeah. guy to be with as well. And yeah. a positive, really positive mind. Yeah. And a, a fabulous gopher, obviously. So I did these company golf days that sort of kept me going because I didn't have any money once I got divorced. That was yeah, that was the end. That's of that. how it works. I can I can testify to that. Yes, <laughs> um, I hope she's well. I mean, she yeah. really was a a lovely person. But um, I then played in these golf days, and I, I played in South America again for about six weeks. I played in Africa and, and made a little bit, not yeah. much, but a little bit. And then it was time to, at Glen Eagles, in the Scottish Open of 1990. That was me. I was putting left-handed by then. 
which, which I never had any prob- problem. But the trouble is, with my my wrong eye looking at the ball, I had no idea where I was aiming. Yeah, right, yeah. So I was I was striking these putts beautifully, yeah. wide of the hole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, before we move on from your pro career, I want to talk a little bit more positively about some of the characters and guys that you played with. I mean, you must have experienced playing with some of the real top guys I played with with some great guys the first time I played with Arnold Palmer was in 75 at the Manga which he won and I'd led the pre-qualifiers so if you did that you got a decent draw but he was me 20 playing with the great Arnold Palmer and he was wonderful and he became a lifelong friend I played with him again in Brazil about 3 or 4 years later and he won that as well Mm -hmm. He had five twos the last round and two sevens. I mean, that, that was typical Arlo. Yeah. Gary Player, mm-hmm. I, I formed a f- strong friendship with through golf days in, in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, I mean, I'm from Johannesburg, mm-hmm. and me from Edinburgh, but we did three days golf days in, in Norfolk. And uh, we always kept in touch. And I played with him in the Tournament Players Championship that I finished third in in, in 79. Um, other ones, if we talk about the Australian players, I mean, I was lucky to live in the, the era of Bob Shearer. Yeah, lovely know, man. Ian Stanley. I mean, Ian, yeah. Ian Stanley was a one-off. Yeah. But gifted. Yeah. They were quite a group then, weren't they? Yeah. And, and <laughs> Bob Shearer and, and Jack Newton married two Piccadilly girls. Yes. Which they met at the Piccadilly medal at Fenham Park, and that was Sam Turns' first victory. Uh, on the European tour then so I was lucky with them Stuart Jen was another one I was very close to Mm -hmm. and we used to share a room to cut the expenses yeah yeah and so these sort of players Johnny Miller I played with in the Open uh, at St Andrews in 84 Hale Owen in 78 when I had it out of bounds at the last lovely (laughs) how did you manage that 20,000 people final day of the Open and really struggling I wasn't playing very well at that point yeah and I thought, well, I'll tee it down, so I'll just cut just it down. Squeeze it out there, yeah. And it bounced on Granny Clark's way, and oh. out you go, down to Walden House and the old woolen mill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was lucky. I played with some fabulous players. Bobby Lott was another one I played with, funny right. enough. Tell me about him. I mean, what, everybody talks well, about what a great putter he was and the big hook on every shot. And I'd, I'd first seen Bobby Lock uh, at the Open in 71 uh, at Birkdale. And in 72, I played a two-round pro-am one that was organised by my management company in Walsall, of all places. Yeah, the great golfing hotbed. Yeah, and I, I used to say he aimed a bit right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you stand on the tee, and I, I looked at him and I thought, he's aiming at me. Yeah. <laughs> he's just going to yeah. skirt me on the, on yeah. the right-hand side. Yeah. And it was an education. Yeah. Uh, just watching him, the control he had with short irons, drawing the ball in. Mm because he had quite a steep downside, because he aimed right, by the time he turned his body onto the target, Aye. the club was quite steep. Yeah. So he could get the ball to spin back comfortably with with um, wedges, even mid-irons. And, he was, and his putting was yeah. just outstanding. Yeah. But, but he was a, a gentleman. Yeah, I went out and watched him, and I'm impressed by my 12-year-old self that I did this at Muirfield in the Open in 72. I watched Bobby Locke play the front nine holes at Muirfield. And he shot 37 with 11 putts because by that time he couldn't reach some of the holes. Sure. But it was an education to watch sure. how he 
got the ball round with 37 with 11 putts is pretty good yeah that's pretty good yeah. uh, but he, he was another one Tommy Bolton over Moody I mentioned Trevino was another one because he was part of my management group mm. uh, he was a genius wasn't he is that it's too strong a word yeah no a genius is a word that's used too often it's a bit like legend yeah but there's very few of them mm-hmm. but Trevino was one of them yeah I mean he could do anything with a golf ball he could make a golf ball talk uh, and okay, he had all this chat. It, it was wonderful. It, 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 he was different from the rest. He was a character. Yeah. And he had the game to back up the character. Um, so he was another one. I, I was just very lucky. I, I just played with a lot of decent players and all the decent players on the European Tour over 20 years. Um, but Bob Shearer was one of my, my favourite guys to play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Clayton, I know he's a good friend of yours. He's uh, he's he's arriving today, believe it or not. Oh, yes. I must uh, I must see him. I did see him earlier in the year actually, but uh, I enjoyed playing with Mike Clayton. He he was a fine golfer, really good golfer. Yeah, yeah, still is. Yeah, maybe he didn't believe he was as good as he was. Yeah, a bit of a temperament issue there, here and there. Perhaps. Little hot, <laughs> little bit hot. <laughs> Certainly uh, at times uh, there was a bit of steam came out there, but then we were all different. And yeah. But he was good company. Yeah, I, think I could course. do a podcast probably on just my experiences caddying for Mike Clayton. <laughs> that would be a podcast by itself. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you and, um, so you're done. You've decided that's the end of it. Um, what are you going to do with yourself after that? Are you kind of looking around for something? Well, I'd, I had moved down to West Sussex because I needed to be attached to a golf club. And I'd been at Walton Heath for 16 years. Though obviously, when I lost my tour card, in 89 it's no good having a tour player who hasn't got a tour card so I had to say goodbye to uh, Walton Heath which was a a huge part of my life my learning process mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful place yeah but yeah and the members were, were outstanding and, and some of them very prominent in the political world and yeah and you go back Winston Churchill and Lloyd George were members there really wow and uh, James Braid obviously was a big part of, yeah. of Walton One of the great practice putting greens, I always think, at yeah. Heath, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it, and it was always in beautiful condition. And, uh, I loved my time there, and, and I grew up there. I became went from a kid to a boy to a youth to a man, because yeah. I left home at, at 18. So leaving there was a, a big blow, and I'd met Nikki, my wife, uh, 10 years before. She was in another relationship then, and and we got together and moved down to West Sussex, and I was attached to Brian Barnes's course, mm-hmm. West Chiltington Golf Club. Another which, character. You've met a few. Yeah, Max Faulkner owned it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've got a Max Faulkner story, I know. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but yes, we'll tell come, your Max Faulkner story when we get to Don't forget yes, that. Yes, we'll, uh, we'll come to Max in a second. But I really wasn't doing anything. I was just doing the odd golf day. Nicky was going up and down to Heathrow to earn, earn the money. And um, there was a call in Brian Barnes's office, and Brian was having a liquid lunch, which he did now and again. Yes. And I'd had the sort of starters with him. Right. And I thought, well, I'd better answer the phone because he's struggling here. Yeah. yeah. And I recognised the voice on the end of it. It was a chap called Andrew Miller, a Scot, and he was the director of the Emirates Golf Club, which had just started. Right. And he said, is Brian about? And I said, well, no, he's a bit busy. He's in a meeting at, at the minute. Yes. <laughs> and I said, can I give him a message? And he said, well, we need someone to do the commentary. Uh, the Dubai Desert Classic, which was the second one, mm-hmm. in 1990. 
Yeah, I said, I'll do that. You just came out with it, did you? Just, well, I'd had, a, yeah. I'd had a couple of glasses yes, of wine. Yes. And, and emboldened yes. is the word. And he says, well, would you? And I said, yeah. And I thought, hang on a minute, I've never done this before. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, we'll send you a, a ticket. And uh, how does 500 quid sound for the week? And of course, I didn't have anything. No. So... So it sounded I, pretty good then. It sounded wonderful. Yeah. It was sweet music. Yeah. So I went there, and the television crew were Arabic. It was a it was a channel called Channel Thirty Three. It was a satellite channel, and Hamid Mubarak was the director. And he said, "Oh, pleased to meet you." He says, uh, "Thought we'd just have a chat before the week." Um, he says, "We haven't done golf before." I thought, oh, yeah. Now, is this a time to tell him that I haven't done this before? Yeah, yeah. And we were joined by a chap called Richard Coram, who was the manager of the Human League. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And he had a radio programme in Dubai. And he was going to be the presenter. Right. So, <laughs> you couldn't make this story up. I mean, you could see the, yes. this is like a big pot with yes. a whole load of ingredients going in. And Richard said, uh, I haven't presented before. So I was thinking of, of Genesis, you know, and then there were three. Yeah. We've got one who hasn't covered it, one who hasn't spoken about it, and one who's never presented. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? So <laughs> they said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, you get a bit of music and a few moody pictures to start with. And that usually lasts about 30 seconds. And, and then up pumps Richard. Yeah. And, and he does his bit, and, and then he hands over the commentary, and away we go. So the pictures came up, and they were, I've still got them. The most stunning pictures I've seen produced in television. And I said, you'll need some music. And I was thinking of the three who'd never done it before, and I thought the way it was, with Bruce Hornsby being the range of oh, there you go. Oh, that's the way it is. Yeah. So we put that over it, and the pictures dissolved, and they were just beautiful, and the words fitted perfectly over the, the pictures. Up pumped Richard off, he went over to commentary, and I've said whatever I've said you've got to say something yeah and then I see the picture and all I saw was the the right hand and the club shaft at the top of the back swing and then both hands and the club shaft on the through swing mm -hmm. but no sign of the ball right. or the player <laughs> so after about two hours Hamid said uh, everything okay I said well we kind of need to see where the ball goes and oh we're not allowed on the other side of the ropes Oh, I said, yeah, that's, that, that's not a problem. And also you need to get one or two platforms built so you can look down yeah. and it'll be easier to follow the ball then. By Saturday, the ball never left the middle of the screen. Everything was as good as it is today. Right. And I, I said, how do you manage to do that? He says, well, we, we cover the Dakar rally, camel racing, and he says, all of that's very quick. So he says, we don't have a problem with that. We just didn't know that we could go onto the golf course. Right. And I had all this Arabic talk back. I mean, I was nearly fluent in Arabic by the same Sunday came. But I thought it was wonderful. And I was on my own. Yeah. Six hours a day. But I knew all the players. Yeah. Because I'd just finished. Yeah. So I, I knew who everyone yeah. was. I you knew, knew things about them. Yeah. 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 And, and little things. And when he did, when he won in here and yeah. little bits like that. And I went back, and about uh, two weeks later, Sky had just started, and, and their sports station was Eurosport. Mm -hmm. 
and they bought the pictures and the commentary from Dubai because they needed as much action as they could get. And then they rang up and said, look, would you like to go down to Las Brisas and, and do our golf coming from there? Which was the beginning of European tour productions, which I did, but I only did two days because I'd agreed to play in the Chilean Open down in Santiago, uh, which I did. Peter German actually did the commentary for the, really? the Saturday Sunday. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, stupid, what, what am I doing going all the way to Chile when I'm not really very keen to play because I'm not very good at it anymore. Yeah. Um, and I came back and they gave me a three-month trial. And part of the, the trial was I had to sit in the gallery for the days I didn't work. So I knew what a producer did, knew what a director did, right. knew what videotape people did. The girls have came backwards in your ears. And he said, you need to understand all of these things because you're just a small part of that. And don't ever think that coming to us, the, yeah. the be-all and end-all, yeah. because they're the workers. Yeah. And they're the ones that supply you with what you need. Mm -hmm. So I spent three months at tournaments doing commentary and... In the, in the gallery, in the studio. And I was given a producer, a journalist in Birmingham called John Killeen. And he became a, one of my closest friends throughout life. And we would sit and have dinner in the evening and say, look, I like the way you did that, keep that, but you've got to get rid of this. You know, that we've got to knock all the rough edges off you. Yeah. You don't need that carry-on you were doing there. And, and John was with me for two years. So how do you, how do you sum up commentary then? I mean, what it's changed what, what I, should you do and what shouldn't you do I think you must always uh, be in harmony with who you're with I think that's very important mm -hmm. but commentary's changed we won't see any great commentators I don't think in the future mm. we won't see Richie Benno yeah, or Bill McLaren uh, James Hunt I thought was a wonderful yeah. commentator on Formula One you don't um, get the time anymore do they? is that part of it? Timing? Yeah, I mean, the time to actually expand on things because it's all very quick and, it is and, now, now, and now off to the 15th, you know, sort of thing. It is now, but in these days, uh, you only had six or seven cameras. Mm. Now you've got 40. Yeah. So obviously the coverage is much quicker. Yeah. So you had more time to talk and, and expand on what you were saying. Mm. But I feel nowadays we, have, we don't have commentators, we have statisticians who somebody... And sits in front of a computer, dishes out all these stats, everyone gets the same page, yeah. and they all come out and they all sound the same. Yeah. And they all use the same language, mm. which the ones I'm talking about, and, and Peter Alice is a perfect example of that, yeah. that Peter was an observer. Yeah. He looked around the screen and he wasn't, wasn't really looking at the guy hitting the shot, yeah. because he was quiet when that was happening. Yeah. That doesn't happen nowadays. They talk over shots. Yeah. That's not what you do in golf. No. And it's not difficult to say, well, he's chosen the driver and he's taken this shot on at 17. Stop. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then you'll get, oh, look, he's 14th in strokes gained. No, no, we don't need that. No. Because the guy at home or sitting on the train watching on his phone nowadays or, or iPads or tablets, they actually want to hear the ball struck and see him strike it yeah. because that's what you do at the weekend yeah. when you play with your mates yeah. you don't talk over him playing mm -hmm. but I find that's the way we are now yeah. you know the feeling when your mate's golf ball flies past yours or when you're on the green in regulation 
but he holds it from the bunker. At Drummond Golf, we get it. That's why we have our lowest price guarantee. As Australia's biggest, you can count on our massive buying power for the lowest prices in golf. But if you do happen to find a lower advertised price, we'll beat it. The Drummond Golf lowest price guarantee. Unbeatable. Conditions apply. People would argue, I mean, I would argue that it's not as good. I mean, I would argue that the game at the top level isn't as good. And I think you've got some feelings on that as well. Certainly in terms of the the equipment and the challenge and the courses that we can't play anymore and the distance the ball goes and and the one it's it's far more one it's closer to one dimensional than it's ever been at the top level i think well Sevi was right he, he said if we go down this route of the ball traveling further with less spin and prime pan driver heads mm. you're going to bring the average player closer to me yeah and he wasn't being presumptuous by that i mean that and that's exactly what's happened yeah whereas before we maybe had a dozen top top quality players you look at a tournament now and one of 80 players could could win that tournament mm. that yeah. d- didn't happen in yeah. years gone by mm. and we we don't see the shot is that a good or shots. a bad thing is that a good or a bad thing oh i think that's a bad thing because yeah. uh, i think the game's difficult mm-hmm. and, and i think the finest exponents find a way to do it yeah and and we're missing out you mentioned Trevino earlier i remember he's second at Woburn when he won the Dunlop Masters and he had three wood to three three inches or so. And the way he shaped it down the left hand yeah. side and ran it in off the bank of the bunker. Yeah. And I think if Faldo's two iron at Wentworth at the fifteenth mm-hmm. in, in, in the match play. Yeah. Trees changing colour, beautiful pictures, and Faldo having to move it twenty five, thirty yards in there were yeah. two iron. Yeah. We don't see that it's still possible though, because just last week uh, the French Open the Italian lad Migliozzi hit this wonderful shot to the 18th green, for sure, and he and he shaped it left to right. So it can still be done, but we don't see enough of it. I don't think. Yeah. No, we don't because what the modern player does is he would shy away from that. And all credit to Migliozzi for taking it on mm-hmm. because it could have been a disaster, oh, a golfing disaster. Absolutely, let's yeah, say. yeah. You end up overcutting it, and then you got to drop back in the other yeah. side. Now you're looking at best of six, and yeah. And he took the shot on, and, and I think that's very important for him in the future. Uh, not the win, but the manner in which he won it. Yeah. And that's something we don't see. Mm-hmm. 90%, I think, would have aimed for the middle of the green. Mm-hmm. Safety, it's a massive green. So you're not going to miss the green, really, unless you miss it. Yeah. Uh, and they would aim there and two-putted and then see where that got them. But Miliotzi thought, no, if I'm like a three here, yeah. I'm going to make it very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I, I, we don't see enough of that. John. I mean, I'm not putting words in your own, in your <laughs> mouth here, but is it as much fun to watch as it used to be? Did you see? Did you play in the best of it? Do you think? I mean, Mike Clayton, we mentioned earlier, he 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 puts it really well. I always think that in the era that that he played and, and you played, it was a fair fight between the equipment and the courses. Definitely. Now it's gone too much. The equipment beats up the courses. You can't to the point where you can't use some of the courses. Whereas right back at the beginning. The courses were too tough for the equipment, which was pretty rudimentary. And only when the equipment improved did it become a, that the fair fight that you saw. The great thing uh, about then was the best player still won. Yeah. Because he, he, he was the one that could cope with all that. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at the Open this year, and okay, we had a very dry summer, and St Andrews was bouncy and dusty. and But I mean, if the Swilkin band wasn't there, there'd be a three wood to hit the middle of the first green. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Young makes a two at the 72nd with a three wooden a putt. The drive in the ninth, the drive in the third. Rory McIlroy drove the second. Yeah. 
and and if they hadn't headed the pens away, in in places we hadn't really seen an open championship no. go, it was in danger of, of fifty eight. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought in, if the weather had been really good, and they hadn't tucked the pens away, like you say, that somebody would have broken sixty. But then others will say to you, "Well, is that such a bad thing?" Mm. Well, it is because the game's tougher than that, yeah. and and it was tougher than that. And the players of old still shot sixty fours and sixty fives. I mean, it, it wasn't like they were struggling to get round in seventy twos or threes. Yeah. But the best players always came through, uh, and without naming anyone now, there there are people who win tournaments who, given the previous playing conditions, probably wouldn't win tournaments. Yeah. And that's what Seve was saying, mm-hmm. that it brought everyone closer together. Yeah. And then it becomes putting. And you look at the Open Championship winner, Cameron Smith, fantastic year, really good young player, but a brilliant putter. Yeah. And the way he putted on that final day was the, the putting of a champion. But it came down to that, because everything was driving away. Yeah. yeah. On a happier note, Talk me through some of the highlights of your commentary career. I mean, what have been the best things to watch? What have been the, the things that stick most in your mind? That first week in Dubai still is, well, yeah, is very yeah, fresh in my yes. mind because I didn't know where we were going from there. Yeah. The following year, I did the Ryder Cup at Kiowa on my own. 33 hours. I mean, think of the poor viewer. <laughs> well, that- that's inhuman punishment for, for, for everybody, including you. The poor viewer having to listen to that. And of course, it was an amazing Ryder Cup. And Seve's argument and yeah. Eisinger and Langer with a putt to win or lose the Ryder Cup, who's had putting problems and yeah. holding the putter against his left arm. And I mean, that, that was a, a very special week. I think probably the most special looking back was 95, the Ryder Cup. Um, Bernard Gallagher I was obviously close because we grew up very much in the same place and he'd, he'd lost in 91 through the tiniest of margins yeah. his tail end let him down in 93 his best players you, yeah. you'd expect something to come and it didn't yeah. and that's the way Ryder Cups go but two, two down going into the Sunday singles Pavin chipping in at Saturday night and all my mates were playing you know, Nick Faldo, Howard Clark, Sam Torrance, and all, all the chaps that I'd played with, Mark James, Mark James yeah. uh, was playing. And somehow, Seve went out first, as you know, and uh, he hit one fairway. Well, that, I walked that first nine holes, and it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen on a golf course to this day. I mean, yeah, he's all smiling with Tom Lemon coming off the ninth green, and he's yeah. hit one green yeah. and one fairway, yeah. and he's all square. Yeah. And I don't know if that inspired everyone. I think probably it did because it was him. Yeah. And eventually he got beat four and three, if I remember rightly. But the, the boys behind all of a sudden found another gear. Howard Clark holding one against yeah. Jacobson. You know, Mark James started to hold putts, which he hadn't done. And and at the tail end, we had Perro, Rick Johansson. They just, they just turned out they're very best golf and and that was the birth of Sky Sports that was when they came onto the scene it was the first Ryder Cup and they were in charge of it and if they'd messed up everyone would have said well this is not the way it was before yeah it was when Butch Harmon joined us um, at just the right time and we had a very good team Bruce Critchley would be well known in Australia he used to go down there annually 
um, and worked with, with several of the commentators there. But that weekend, that Sunday, will probably probably stand out as as the most memorable. I mean, I've made a few mistakes in my life as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, even more than Medina. I mean, you know, it's the same kind of scenario. Medina was the one that everybody mentions. You know, yeah, to be there was a was a great privilege. You know, from the minute Rory got the time wrong and and, yeah. and had to get the policeman to take him to the first tee and. Mm. And was it Luke Donald that, that led the way there? Yeah. Was, he, was he the he guy who went out yeah. first? And that was so important. After what Poulter had done on the Saturday evening, it was so important to get up early because what looked like maybe 12-4 became 10-6, yeah. would then become 10-8. Yeah. You think, well, I don't know, minute. Yeah. Yeah. This was never going to happen. Yeah. If it had gone anything from 10-4, if it had gone any other way, it was done. Yeah. yeah. And, and Nicholas Kilsat's performance that week, and Paul Laurie's performance that week, you know, maybe the slightly unheralded players, uh, when everyone's looking at our top guys. Yeah, yeah. You've got Ola as captain, they've got Seve in the bag. Uh, so, yes, that was that was something you, you'll never forget. Um, four o'clock on Saturday, you were thinking, well, that's, yeah, if, if Steven Spielberg's written this, I think he needs to go for a holiday <laughs> because there's something wrong with him. Nobody would have believed it. Yeah. Um, so that was very special as well. All, all the Ryder Cups have been yeah. have been special. You and how do you handle criticism when you see something that you don't like? Is there a, is there a line that you have to stay the right side of? I mean, how does that work in TV? Because I mean, I you know I'm I'm a journalist. I, I think about I can have a go at people, and you'll be surprised to hear that I have in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's, t- t- broadcasting is different. It's a different form of journalism, and and it. Where, where's the line and where do you think your line is? Well, it's more difficult now because you have to be very careful what you say because yeah. you're going to upset somebody. But you have to accept that you're going to upset somebody. And as long as it's not rude or derogative, or, I mean, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. You don't mean to. But to answer your, your question in two parts, the first part is that there's a journalist in, in this part of the world called Ewan Murray. Yes. <laughs> I was going to get to him. Yeah, he's a good pal of mine, yeah. And well, slightly you're... different spelling from the yes. your name, but yeah. Yes, just the one letter. Yeah. But his spelt with an A, mine with an E. So when the criticism comes, Ewan answers it. Yeah. Well, people fire off tw- tweets to him thinking it's you. Yeah. And he, he's, he, I have to say, he's absolutely brilliant <laughs> at the responses he gives. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm glad you find it funny because it, it could have gone either way at one point. Well, that's uh, that's how how I handle some of the criticism. Yeah, it, it's it's passed over to him because they send it to the wrong address. Yeah, and he comes back with, you know, you come down the commentary box and I'll stick this microphone where you don't want it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then a, the guy thinks, God, I never thought you and Murray was like that. He <laughs> seems quite calm on television. <laughs> and he seems a half decent bloke. And look, look what he's just sent me. Yeah. Yeah, well, not me. That's yeah. that's yeah. the other guy. Just so people know, you the other Ewan Murray is the the golf writer on the Guardian newspaper. That's, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, funny enough, I was walking the dog the other day, and uh, the guy said, "I love your column in the Guardian." So I I did what Ewan did. I said, "Thanks very much." That's yeah. very kind. <laughs> I've had I've had criticism. I had. It depends who it comes from as well. Uh, if it comes from someone you respect uh, and admire then you look at it and think, well, there must be some truth in this. And early on, I had a bit of criticism from Peter Ellis. Uh, it was one. I was lucky. I was lucky to know 
good commentators who, who would just say, yeah, you're doing fine. You maybe talk too much or you don't talk enough. Or, yeah. or, um, How about the, the criticism coming from you? How do you handle that? I mean, Unfortunately, I made a decision never to get too close to players because there was a time I was going to have to say something. Yeah. And, and Monty's a, a good example of this. A young kid wanted him to sign a boat uh, in in France and, and Monty said something to him he probably shouldn't have said and I said well you know that's unacceptable here's a lad who's come to the golf for the day and and I haven't ripped into Monty but I've let him know that you know you can't do this yeah and there was another one at the London club when he turned around to one of our cameramen and said well you stand still these people are here because of me not you yeah I remember that yeah and I was with Bruce and Bruce was very close to Colin and another two commentators who just switched the mics on. But that's no good. No. Because... No, you've got a responsibility to step up at that point. You have. And and Monty and I didn't speak for for two months. I Only mean, two months? I went ten years without talking <laughs> to him. Yeah, but you're more resilient than me. <laughs> and one day we came into a, a foyer of a hotel and our eyes were sort of flashing over at each other. And I said, Monty, this is this is stupid. You know, you're going to be around a long time. I'm going to be around a long time. Yeah. We've got to sort this. Yeah. He became one of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. I wrote him a letter. Um, I went to his house for dinner when he was up at Glen Eagles. And, and we became very close. And then, of course, he becomes a partner. He becomes your co-commentator yeah. at the major tournaments, yeah, yeah. which is why you should never let you should never let these things get to you. Mm-hmm. You should nip them in the bud. Yeah. The worst one was probably Tiger in Dubai when he spat on the 12th green, four feet from the hole, three groups behind him. And I remember I said something like, for someone who's so inspirational, not just in golf, but in any sport, there are times when he can become petulant and arrogant. And what he's done there is as low as it gets. Yeah. And Howard Clark was with me at the time, and I, I switched his button off. I said, leave it, because then you'll get involved. Yeah. Just wait until the picture changes, and that'll be it. And you just let that comment hang. Yeah. Well, the hate mail I got after that. Yeah, I can and imagine. Don't bother coming back to America, because we've got your back and all this yeah. stuff. Tiger never spoke to me from that day, and I was very close to him, because Butch Harmon was his coach. Some mornings I'd get up in the majors uh, at four or five o'clock be at the golf club at six for nine holes with him mm-hmm. and I would I would never get involved with what Butch and he were doing but I'd, I'd walk around the edge of the fairway yeah, and yeah. we'd meet up at the tees and then let them have their time and he was the most immaculate young man Tiger uh, manners wise mm-hmm. um, caring wise but after what happened in Dubai uh, he's never ever spoken yeah. to me again well I I've got a tiger story, but I can't tell it on a podcast. It involves <laughs> I words. What, I think I know which it one involves it is. words. It happened in Abu Dhabi, but that's all I can say <laughs> for the purposes of this, unfortunately. But yeah, he, he doesn't take well to criticism, it must be said. No, and, and that, getting back to what I said earlier, I, I made up my mind never to get too close to players. I, mean, I did coach a couple of players, mm-hmm. um, and Darren Clark and, and, and Gary Evans for a total of 11 years. But I said to them, look, if you mess up on the golf course and misbehave, yeah. you realise I'm not going to cover for you. Yeah. And, and they said, oh, it'll never happen. 
and, and thankfully it never did. But uh, I enjoyed that time of my, my life as well. A difficult time for Darren, obviously. You know, his kids were eight and six when his wife Heather passed away at the age of 38. And I spent a lot of time with uh, with Darren. And not so much on the course, but at his house and sorting things out and seeing a way forward. Yeah. And all of a sudden he was a single dad. And Darren was never cut out for that. No. But somehow succeeded. Yeah, you, it's a difficult line. I mean, I, you know, I've got players who, who I would regard as friends of mine, but you don't set out to do that. I mean, I always think, well, you, if you can get the respect that's what, in, a, in a friendly, professional relationship, that's as much as you can ever hope for, I think. Well, or, that's ever, or ever aspire to, really. That's what happened with Cullen. Uh, and there was someone else I had a bit of a, a spatter with as well. But Cullen was the main one. Yeah, but you're not doing your job properly if you don't fall out with them now and again, I think. You know, certainly in my role as a journalist. Well, know. of all the criticism I got for the Tiger thing in Dubai, I was really quite comfortable. I was upset about it. Uh, but you were I, right. I mean, you can't uh, be doing what you did. No. I mean, it's ridiculous. No. Yeah. And, and of course, he, he had a habit of spitting when things weren't going yeah. too well. Yeah. You know, and nobody had mentioned that yeah. before. When, did, when do you think that started, the spitting stuff? I mean, I, I had once said to Jim Furyk about it because he spits constantly. I said, what, what, why are you doing that? He said, oh, he says it's a baseball thing in America. To which my response was, well, I didn't see Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Lee Trevino doing it. I mean, it had no. to start somewhere. You know, it's bizarre. No, and it probably started um, with Tiger. Yeah. Pro- probably in 96 when yeah. he, he came on. And I think the spit was, that's what I think of that shot. I, I don't mm. think it was anything more nasty than that. But it, it's unacceptable for young kids to be watching it. Yeah, but I mean, if I was growing up where I played in Dunbar, that you know well, I mean, I'd have been thrown off you know, for doing that. Definitely. Yeah. It'd be like Nobody throwing, throwing people in the fairway. I mean, you, yeah. you wouldn't do that either. Yeah. But uh, there was a chap wrote to me uh, from somewhere in England, and he said, thank you for what you did, because I was watching with my seven-year-old son. And when Tiger spent, it was about quarter past quarter to three in the afternoon so it would be mid-morning for the guy watching in mm. in uh, England and he said you've done so much for him and the people he'll play golf with and the people I'll play golf with yeah so that that softened it a little bit Sky offered to get involved in because of the the threats that were coming through and I mean the guy if he hadn't spat in the green I wouldn't have said anything no so I'm I just felt blameless in this yeah. I also said that about the inspiration uh, that he is to millions of people around the world. Yeah. And then there's that arrogance and petulance, and, and that's unacceptable. And that, it was as short as that. Yeah, I mean, if I'd been your boss, I'd have been congratulating you for Well, doing had that. I gone home and said nothing, yeah. my boss would have called me in and yeah. said, by the way, Ian, what are we paying you for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair point. You thought that was okay, did you? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if he hadn't spat, it wouldn't have happened. He did, and it did happen. But but it was a rough time. Yeah. It was a rough year. Yeah. Right, Ewan, I'm going to make you king for a day here. Uh, you're in charge of golf. Um, what would you do with the equipment issues at the top of the game? I think it's too late to wind everything back, sadly. If, if, if I had the chance to do that, I would. But the one thing I would definitely do is I'd bring the driver heads down to the size they were. I would give them a spinning ball. Um, 
which would still be struck a, a fair distance by the very best of strikers, yeah. but wouldn't be by the ones that maybe aren't the very best. You know, Gary Player, Nicholas and, and, and Palmer were the big three, and, and people of our age, a lot of people would have been brought into the game by watching the big three. Yeah. All three of them said in the 80s that if you don't watch what you're doing here, you're going to have to lengthen courses. That's what Nicholas said. Yeah. Correct. Gary Player said you're going to have people hitting the ball quarter of a mile. It's happened. Mm-hmm. Correct. And Arnold Palmer says you're going to take all the fun out of the game. You're going to take all the, the skill, the art, the art of shaping, not just Black Miljotzi from left to right, but yeah. being able to do yeah. complete opposites well, as well. They don't do it because they don't have to. No, they don't. And, yeah. and the PGA Tour have courses that are really not penal. Mm. My tournament of the year was uh, Muirfield. Uh, the Women's Open. This year, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't seen Muirfield like most people hadn't for many years. But the way the girls played Muirfield, they played the course the way it was designed. Yeah. Because they're hitting into a breeze at the first, they're maybe hitting it 240, 235, 40, which gets you to the corner of the dog leg. Yeah. Then you have a long iron, or, like many of them use today, utility clubs, but two proper shots. The manners of the ladies, the quality of their golf, the way the golf course played, that for me, I know it was the 150th opening at St Andrews and that was a special week, but that reminded me of how wonderful yeah. golf was. Yeah, I think the, the phrase that, that leaps out at me with what you just said is that they played the course the way it was supposed to be played. Yeah. You know? yeah. And the men don't do that anymore. Well, if you look at uh, some of the big hitters today, let's take Bryson DeChambeau, who's find a way to hit the ball a long way he would stand on that first tee at Muirfield and take a direct line mm. and if it's in the rough yeah. it doesn't really matter very yeah. much because he's only got 70 yards to go Yeah, it's not a long hole no. 440 maybe four, yeah. somewhere about yeah. there the second hole would then be drivable Yeah, the third hole would be drivable if the, yeah they took it on Yeah, you know, the fifth's are driving a sandwich for them yeah. if, if the wind's from the west so you, you're seeing a, a majestic golf course, one of the top five golf courses in the world, and you're seeing it ripped apart mm-hmm. and, and not played the way it was meant to be played. Yeah. Um, that really struck home to me, that week uh, of the ladies. And, and I, I thought the ladies' golf, the, the quality of their golf was, was quite outstanding. Yeah. If I was CEO of a, a big company, that's where I would go. There was no swearing. There was no club throwing. Yeah. Uh, shaking hands with the, the scorers, the referees. Uh, same at the end. Thank you for, for that. Yeah. They were a credit to the LPGA Tour, the Ladies European Tour, and the game of golf. It's old world manners, isn't it, really? You don't see that from the, the yeah. top players, a lot of them. Well, many they're, naming it. They're, they're too entitled, they're spoiled, they're, they're told they're special from such an early age that they, they start to believe it, a lot of them. Yeah, and they behave in that way, you know. And you've also got the manners from these, you know, from Japan, from from China, from Thailand, from Korea. You've got the the manners that their yeah. their countries have, respect for the respect yeah. they have. Like Matsuyama's caddy Shota, you know. But the, I mean that that reduced a lot of people to tears, mm. and yet it was just good manners yeah. and respect. Mm. That's all it was. Yeah. But it was so beautifully done. Yeah. And I saw a lot of that at uh, at Muirfield. I hope the ladies came 
continues to, to be. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of the women's game, I, and to the point where I'd much rather watch a women's event now than a ma- men equivalent on certain most courses, to be honest. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Muirfield was a great example of that. And all, all the holes that move a little bit left to right or right to left, they were driving yeah. to the knee or the elbow of the, the dog leg. And, and then it was right. Do we chase one in low here? or yeah. Because they haven't got the power to yeah. send it all the way past the pin and spin yeah. it back. It's not their yeah. game. Because the victims in all of this are the golf courses. Yes. They're the biggest victims. But that's what Nicholas said. Uh, when the big three spoke in the 80s, Nicholas said you're going to have to lengthen golf courses You'll take away the character. The kinks in the dog legs will be in the wrong place, which is also true. Yeah. I mean, there is no dog legs for people like Bryson DeChambeau or Dustin Johnson. Yeah. They just go, and out no. comes the wedge out of the rough. Yeah. The okay. greens are softer. <clears throat> I think we're, we're going to see this next year at the Masters when they move the tee back at the 13th. Mm. The, the, the whole, this whole thing is, is, is summed up for me by that, that one hole, which... At its best is maybe the best hole in the world, given the you know the what Bobby Jones called the, the you know the challenge of the second shot, whatever the phrase was. That's totally gone now, well, completely eliminated. <clears throat> what other sport would do that? Would eliminate the you know the best things about it? It's weird. Well, you could make tennis the way golf is today, but they look at the ball mm. and they fluff the ball up. Yeah, but if if they gave them a ball that went faster. Nobody would watch tennis. No. Because nobody would be able to return. Yeah. And and we should look at that and think, well, maybe we can find a ball that doesn't go as far. But what's the millions of golfers around the world thinking about that? They like the big-headed driver. Oh, I'm only talking about the top level here. Yeah. Whatever it takes to have the, the punters have more fun, I'm all for that, you know. But then you've got... You've got the people who play golf, the amateurs, who, who want to play with the same gear Aye. as the pros. Yeah. Now, if you then say, well, there's a nice new driver for you, like an old persimmon driver, let's say, but maybe metal, whatever, and there's a ball. Now, i got to tell you, you're going to lose 25 yards off the tee. What does the, the amateur golfer think of that? Yeah, but that happened. That happened 40 years ago, Ewan. When the rest, the whole world except America went from the small ball to the big ball I lost. I remember losing 20 yards and I didn't see, as Mike Clayton always says it, you don't see millions of people rushing away saying, oh it's too hard, it's too hard I can't play golf anymore you know, it didn't happen Well, uh, the American size golf ball uh, the, la- the first open I played in was the last open with the, the 1.62 yeah. in 1974 was the first one with the big ball 74 was yeah. the first one but you know, the, the American ball that we had wasn't like the American ball the Americans had no. I remember the Schweppes at Dunbar. Yeah, 68. Yeah. Well, they, they had a, a big ball week yeah, there. That's right, they did. They, right. they introduced the big yeah. ball, of course, it blew. Yeah. 61. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Dunbar went from sort of a good chance of 66 to, well, I did quite well today. I, I got round in 82. Yeah. Because yeah. the ball was no good. Yeah. But then as the years progressed and, and time evolved, the ball got better. Mm-hmm. And if someone now gave you a 1.62 you just say no, no no because if on the fairway it would look like it's, it's yeah. semi-plugged that's right yeah I mean that was the big thing about the introduction of the big ball it was bigger obviously it looked bigger and it sat up a little bit better and it spun more yeah you know so. I can still remember I've still got the newspaper clipping from that event because I mean I was there as a small child watching it and the Norman Mayer the great Norman mm. Mayer was writing in The Scotsman um, and Di Reese had driven into a divot 
and the, the quote from Reese was, "Thank goodness we were playing with the big ball. I might have lost it." it so, <laughs> that kind of, so you know, there was compensations maybe, but not many. Yeah, but you're right. Nobody moaned. No, they just got onward. Exactly. Yeah. But but that ball was poor. I mean, so the, the first three oh, or four years. Yeah. We used to on the first day we used to have a, a ring. Yeah. yeah. And a metal ring. You'd put the ball through yeah, to make sure. Yeah. That it was the right size. Yeah. And the, the amount that never went through. Is that right? I mean, there were there were more rugby balls than yeah. than golf balls. Yeah. And it, out of six, you might get one, maybe two if you're lucky, yeah. that went through the ring at the right, right. pace. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jan, before we descend too far into old fuddy-duddyism, which I think we were getting close there for a minute, um, the last bit of this year, I need to talk to you about live golf and mm. the impact that it's had. I mean, you've observed, like everybody else, do you see a solution to this and, and where do you think we're headed? And do you, I mean, nobody likes where we are right now, but what's your feelings? Well, first of all, the, the European Tour, now the DP World Tour, I was a founder member of that in 71 and it was difficult and it didn't look like we were going to succeed yeah. and the the whole prize money for the, the year was one million that's, that's for all the tournaments added Everything. together yeah. so you were never going to make a living out of it the PGA Tour I mean the success they've had over 50 years they have a pension fund that's the envy of the business world in, in the United States the prize money has gone up considerably every year. Obviously, a tremendous boost when Tiger appeared. And I look at a, a player like Dustin Johnson, uh, 38, Bryson DeChambeau, 10 years younger or so. And I think, why would you leave that when, when you're, you've got 47 tournaments? You can play as many as you want. You probably have to play 15 to be a member. See, I would argue that's too many, though. Well, without Too much golf. We don't have an off season. I mean, everyone says the NFL, you know, has their off season. They're champing at the bit for it to come back. Yeah. We don't. We, we just continue yeah. over, yeah. and that's a mistake. And I don't think the PGA Tour is a far from above criticism in all of this. I mean, this is done for Golf Australia magazine promote this this podcast. The Australian Tour has been decimated by the the attitude and I would argue arrogance of the PGA Tour, and it's not alone. And you know, they've they've just taken over. You know. Yeah, but if they had an off-season... That's it, right. That, that, that's then, why they should have an off-season. South Africa, yeah. Australia, yeah. Japan are, are back in. We'd and all get their, got a world game again. Get their share, yeah. So I wouldn't criticise them too much for that, but I would just say you have too many tournaments. Yeah. And I think the DP world has too many tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too easy to keep your cart. Yeah. You know? yes. Be better with a short yeah. I season. I remember the pal of mine, Raymond Russell, who played didn't play in the tour anymore he's, but he back in the day I remember him telling me he says look he says if you start the season on the European tour with a fully exempt and can play whatever you want and you lose your card you have played rubbish yes you know. yeah, and, and also 125 players shouldn't retain their card no you, it's too many you should have a bigger <laughs> influx because the Corn Ferry tour is such a good tour mm-hmm. and you should have 50 of them yeah. coming in a whole lot yeah. and, and, and cut it down to I think maybe seventy-five, eighty would be yeah. would be okay. Yeah. Do you think all of those things together that we've touched on there are contributing to the the, the fact that they were vulnerable to somebody like Liv coming along? I think so. Um, but to finish the story with with the other two, you know, they leave their house on on a Tuesday. They've got the steps of a private jet. 
At the bottom of the steps of the private jet on arrival, there's a nice shiny new top-of-the-range Genesis or yeah. Mercedes or BMW. You drive that to your five-star hotel. You play golf the next day. You maybe do half an hour, an hour media stuff. Let's say you finish in the top five. Sunday night, you go back with the car to the foot of the steps. You go back in the private jet and you're home to see the kids you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I don't know why you'd want to get away from that. Yeah. But having said that, we live in a world of, hopefully, of freedom and, and freedom of choice. And you should never take away the choice from anybody. And I have no problems with those who have chosen live. Uh, they've said they want to see more of their family. The schedule was the big thing for them. Eight tournaments this year, 14 next year. Uh, it means I can spend more time fishing for the likes of Cameron Smith. Yep. That was his quote. Yep. I haven't got any problem with that at all. But then two or three weeks later, they want to play on the DP World Tour. They want to play on the PGA Tour. They want to play in the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. Well, hang on, you're now into 32, 33 tournaments a year. Yeah. And and the whole thing for you, Join and Live, was the schedule, that you'd have more time. You didn't say the money was. And I think if you're happy with the money, you're happy with the tour, and you're comfortable with from where the money comes from, yeah. then, then go your own way. What, what, what would you have done? It's only unfair question, maybe. Uh, no, uh, there's would not enough have, money with, with the right in, offer, would you have done it? There's not enough money printed in the world for me to... Because I think once you join that, you're part of that. And uh, I have Saudi Arabian friends um, who have been pilots and right. they live quite near me. And uh, I'm quite close to them. But when I see what goes on in Saudi Arabia, I don't want to be part of that. If that's what you do, mm. it's your country. Yeah. And for all those who have joined, they're part of that now. Uh, and whether there'll be a way back, they go on about world ranking points. Rory earlier this week, while up at the Dunhill, he turned around and said it could be a year or two before all that happens because it's the way the points system works. Yeah. Do you want points, world ranking points for 54 holes, shotgun star? I mean, the last time I did that was the family foursomes at Babbitt. <laughs> Yeah. You know, shotgun yeah, yeah. start. Yeah. It's not professional golf. A lot of television companies have distanced themselves from covering it. It looks like Fox Sports might be a, a runner uh, in the States. How difficult is it going to be to, to cover the golf? Because the guy might not finish at 18. Yeah. You might have someone like Miliotzi who, who had that weekend in France and, and, and I think was at one point. 12 shots well, behind. Well, he was 13 ahead, 13 behind at the halfway stage. Yeah. 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 And, and he comes through. Now, if he was 13 behind going into the last two rounds, his starting point would probably yeah. be the 8th or the 14th. I must admit, I do laugh at this argument that it's fairer, in inverted commas, the, the shotgun start because everybody's on the course at the same time. But the hard holes determine how, you know, if you're starting your, if you take sawgrass as an example, you're starting on the 18th. Yeah. You know, I'd rather play the 18th as maybe the 6th or 7th and you're into the standing on the, the first tee at the eight and thinking, you know, that that's not an equal game, it, you know. No, and also, also sleeping on a lead uh, over over four days is part of mm. what golf is. The 72-hole stroke play events, most of them, whether you like that or not, doesn't matter. 
that's what they are, and you go into Sunday and you last off, and the whole field's gone round the golf course, so the greens aren't as pristine as they were yeah. in the early part of the day. So, but that's it. Yeah. That's what you have to do to win. Yeah. You have to master that. And I agree with you about sawgrass. I mean, if you took seven and it was the sixth, though, you've got time to recover. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. But you haven't got any time. And you look at these last three holes, I mean, anything can happen. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. How, how do you feel about, I mean, uh, I've known Henrik Stenson a long time, and you have too, probably. Um, a good guy. Always been a good guy. I've, yeah. I've liked him. He's done a lot of good things in the game, juniors and all the rest of it. And and he goes to live. In the Ryder Cup thing, captain say. I think he deserved to be criticised over that, certainly. But I, I have a I have a slight problem with the fact that this Henrik Stenson is now suddenly a bad guy because of one decision he's made in his life. Hen, Hen, you know? Henrik will never be a bad guy. No, but never. then the Swedish Golf never. Federation have just turned round and yeah. thrown the, him out. The, mis- the mistake Henrik made was accepting the Ryder Cup captains. Yeah. Because he knew what was going on. I mean, yeah. there, there was whispers <clears throat> in the paper. Yeah. <clears throat> There are no whispers unless there's some truth in it. Yeah. And he shouldn't have accepted that. He should have just said, what is he, 46? He should yeah, have, he, he's he, in that black hole that I call yeah. it, between 45 and 50 for pros. Yeah, he should have maybe just said, look, a couple of years' time, yeah. I'll be with you. Yeah. And then if he goes to live, it's not a problem. I'm upset that his homeland has banned it. Yeah, I think Effect- it's, it's a cruel and unusual punishment, which is maybe... Sounds silly, given we're talking about Saudi Arabians, but um, I, I do have a hard time just suddenly dismissing somebody like him. And he's just an example. Yeah, he's he's, he's suddenly a bad guy now. Well, he's yeah. done. Look at all the good things he's done. You know? And Sweden's first male major champion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's achieved so much, and and it hasn't been easy for Henrik. There's two times in his career where he's lost his game. Yeah, and he's found the courage and the determination and. And the class and yeah. the work ethic. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't hit the world at one point. No, you know, no, so. no. 02, 01 and 02, I mean, he couldn't find a fairway. But no, he's not become a bad guy overnight. The mistake was accepting the Ryder Cup captaincy. Live absolutely thrilled because they've they've taken the European Ryder Cup yeah. captain away. And, and that, sadly, is the battleground we're in right now. Yeah. And what's going to happen? Does America want to get involved with Saudi Arabia? given the history probably not yeah. so what's does, the solution is there a solution well does Europe then become part of a rest of the world tour and, and you have the PGA tour mm-hmm. that's the way I, I see it maybe not happening in my lifetime mm-hmm. but the way I see it is that that the PGA tour will remain pretty much as it is hopefully shorter and the rest of the world tour will then be able to get Australia back in business I mean you ask all the players from my era Australia um, Andrew Coulter I'm working with this week Andrew yeah. won the PGA down yeah. there David Howell I think won and Sam did as well didn't it? and Sam I mean they, they used to say oh great we're going to Australia because the courses are outstanding yeah. it's a sporting country mm-hmm. they speak English sort of yes and the, <laughs> and the, sorry folks <laughs> and the people of Australia love welcoming other sportsmen as they have in cricket, as they have in rugby, and yeah. all, all the other... Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm a huge, obviously, because what it's saying. Yeah, it's just a great sporting country. And, and if they were centre stage for a month, and then Japan mm, yeah. for a little while, two, three weeks maybe, uh, there's the chance of China, you've got Korea, 
who are supplying so many wonderful golfers in this modern era. Maybe a couple of weeks there. South Africa might be part of that. Well, I'd, I'd long argued, before all this live stuff happened, I'd, I'd long argued that the European Tour should have gotten into bed with the Asian Tour and, and others and made, a, as you just said, a rest of the world tour yeah. other than America. That, was, that would have been competitive with yeah, the PGA and, Tour. And, and that doesn't mean that you can't go and play in the PGA no. Tour. And it doesn't mean that from the PGA Tour you can't go and no. play in the rest of the World Tour. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it's like the baseball thing in America. They call it the World Series. I mean, what... I know. You know, the world doesn't end at Jacksonville and it doesn't end in Los Angeles. Oh, but, oh, but it does, you for a lot of people. Well, I think they have to look at that and yeah. think, like, you asked if there'll be a solution. The only solution I can see is that the rest of the world tour, which includes the DP World Tour, Australian tour, Australasian tour, the Asian tour, the Japanese tour, imagine how strong that would be. Exactly. That's always been my argument. Yeah, and the beautiful courses, the different cultures. Uh, imagine the, the next generation of golfers saying, look, you can play in Thailand, you can play in Indonesia, you can go and play in Fiji if they've got a golf course here. And we'll have all of these things. And, and maybe if you don't want to go to Japan, you can go to Australia for four weeks and, yeah. and, and make your home there. That's the only compromise I can see. Yeah. Um, but the people who have taken the money, I look at the players who haven't taken the money, and there's an animosity there, understandably so. And how is that going to pan out? But this is not going to be sorted in a year or six months. This is going to take longer than that and, and hopefully at the end of it the world is involved once again with golf and America can still have America can still have their their uh, PGA Tour yeah. and, and they need to learn they need an off-season it's healthy yeah. to have an off-season and, and not 125 exempt you know make the influx bigger yeah. so there's younger players coming in all the time yeah. and for those who are between 80 and 125, they haven't played that well. No. Oh, you know? I mean, it's 120,000 for 10th place. Yeah. And, and a million gets you count. I know. I mean, so Pat they haven't really I mean, played Look at the money Pat Perez has won since he went to live. I mean, he's, well, you know, he's I got to laugh in I a way. I kind of understand them. Yeah. 46, they've been offered a whole lot of money. Yeah. But, but don't then come back and say, yeah, but I want to play there as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, Lee Westwood makes perfect sense to me. That yes. he went. He's, he's no interest in playing the PGA Tour anymore. No, and he just wants to play less and enjoy his life. And he's, you know, no. he's, he's past his best. He's, he's not as good as he used to be. He's still pretty good, but he's not as good as he was. Yeah, and he's fifty in April, and he, he's done so much for the DP World Tour, Stroke European Tour over the years. Do I want to watch Lee playing live golf? No, because I saw him when he was thirty, and he was outstanding. Yeah. I watched Mickelson for 30 years and and loved every second of it because like him I never really knew what was going to happen Yeah, yeah. Um, and he gave so much to golf Mickelson yeah, he was fun at that age Pat Perez is 47 at that age think yeah go but when you go focus on and support that tour mm. don't then come back and say you want to play in the BMW PGA because the first prize is 1.3 million and, and don't pick the best tournaments on the on the PGA Tour. And then there's the thing about the, the majors. What happens with them? But yeah. if you make the choice, you knew there was going to be possibilities yeah. that all of these things could happen, or some of them. Yeah. And they have. And it, for me, 
all the ones that have gone to live, no problem with that whatsoever. But focus on and support live and make that a success. The other tours are part of your history. Seems like a good place to stop, Ewan. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Very interesting chat over the last hour and 18 minutes, believe it or not. Yeah, we could go on uh, forever because we're we're both sort of steeped in the game the same way. I just hope that the listeners don't think that we're fuddy-duddies. But we we are. We are. (laughs) (laughs) Are we doing up to that? Well, as a commentator, I've had to move with the times anyway. You have to move with the spin rates and the the launch angles, which... I mean, I still think the golf ball's the best coach in the game. Mm. But uh, I'm not really looking back saying, oh, it wasn't at the good old days. But the game was better for what we had. Yeah. And and it, what we have now is not an improvement. No. no. I'm with you on that. And on that note, Ewan, thanks for your time. Some fascinating stuff there from Ewan Murray. And no doubt he's made himself even more popular in this part of the world with his kind words about Bob Shearer, Ian Stanley, Jack Newton among others. Well, that's it for this episode of The Pod, but I hope you're following along because on our next, we shift gears for a chat with a young woman making waves in the golf architecture space. It's really hard to justify having a golf course in a lot of places, in my opinion. And um, if we're just playing it for a sport, um, then then maybe that's it's not worth it. But if there's value in what it can bring to the community or how it can help a person's mental health or physical health, then then those kind of social impact offerings make a golf course more valuable and more worthy of the land usage, the water usage, etc. That's Canada's Christine Fraser, next time on The Thing About Golf. 